Uh, Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show our to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are the signs! How great are His signs! His His mighty His boy. I read this about a hundred times, so please bear with me. His mighty, his wonders, his kingdom in everlasting kingdom and dominion endures for generations to generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bread and fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretations of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and told, I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these that I saw. And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height so great, The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud, and he said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off the leaves and, sh- and scatter its fruit, lest the beast flee from under it and the birds from the top branches, but leave the stump of its root in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid a tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets over it in the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, was dismayed but for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshar, let not the dream or the interpretations alarm you. 
Balthazar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretations be for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which the food there was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in which the branches, the birds from heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become so strong. Your greatness was known and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw the watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let he be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be that which the beasts of the field of the beasts of the fields, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with those of the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he wills. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy on the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like that of a bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I established my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the holy, the, uh, and praise, exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. These are the words of our Lord. Daniel chapter 4. Thanks, Carol, for reading that. It's a great story. Um, in, in 1940, the uh, Prime Minister of England was Winston Churchill. He was uh, the new Prime Minister, and he was actually having a lot of pressure on him to make peace with Hitler and Germany. And the reason was, World War I wasn't that far in the past. And England lost a lot of men on the battlefield. And so there was a lot of pressure to just make peace, figure out how to not go to war with Germany. And yet, in light of that, Winston Churchill knew that he couldn't make peace. And so he took to the airwaves and he used the power of the pen and the power of the spoken word in order to inspire his nation and in many ways to inspire the world. Now, if you know anything about Winston Churchill, you know this, that, that he was actually not very good at school early on. And so he was kind of, uh, in, when, when he was going to school, he had to take Latin and Greek. Thank the good Lord, I, I didn't have to do that. But he had to, and he was really bad at Greek and Latin. And so his teacher, whoever he or she was, we should someday thank this person, took Winston out of Greek and Latin, and placed him in more and more English classes so that he could learn more about how to use just regular English language in his everyday life. And that he did. Uh, One of his contemporaries said this of Churchill. Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. It was his gift, right? The power of the spoken word to just inspire a nation. So I quote, on June 18th, 1940, Churchill spoke these words. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all of Europe may be free. And life and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States... And all that we have known and cared for will sink into the abyss of the new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more prolonged by the lights of a perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves. If we, the British Commonwealth and the Empire, last for a thousand more years, men will say of us, this was our finest hour. Not half bad, huh? Well, it turns out that that was their finest hour in which they offered nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But really, when you think about those words and those sorts of speeches and what inspire those words and those sorts of speeches, it's not times of prosperity that those words are written. It's not times of peace that those speeches are given. It was Hitler 
and all the evil of what was going on in Europe at the time. It was the precipice of a world about to go to war that inspired those words. You see, Churchill kind of formed those words, not under the kind of the guise of peace, but he wrote them in the context sitting in Parliament in the backdrop of Mount Doom. Well, this morning, a king is going to make a speech to his empire, and they're eerily similar in some ways to Churchill because he's going to use these words, a speech, a sort of uh, newsletter of the king to his kingdom. He's going to try to inspire his kingdom towards an amazing end. And these words are so good. These words from this king are so amazing. They're so lofty. They're so uh, just prophetic and theological that 3,000 years later, we're still talking about it. And these words are not from King David. These words are not from Moses or Abraham, one of the patriarchs. These words are from a pagan king in Babylon who spoke some of the most glorious poetry in the Old Testament as a pagan king in Babylon. Now, how did this happen? Like, how in the world would this king testify to his newfound faith in the God of Israel? What sort of blood, toil, tears, and sweat would inspire these words? That's what Daniel 4 is all about. Daniel 4 is all about the epic experience a king goes through in order to experience the God of the Bible, and he wants you, he wants me. Actually, more than that, he wants the entire world to know the God of the Bible. The big idea this morning, in sort of succinct form, sort of moving in three parts, is this. God makes his sovereign rule known, leading the proud transformed into the praiseful. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends, or I should say, it begins about 20 years after the events of chapter 3. So chapter 3 was that epic story of Daniel's three friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, about 20 years have passed. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is at, a, at an older age, and he is living the good life. He has won war after war. He has, he has it conquered more lands. He has advanced his kingdom agenda. He has built many, many things, glorious things. He, he just finished his Build Back Better Babylon agenda. Including, he built for his wife, one of the seven wonders of the world called the Hanging Gardens. His poll numbers are good. Peace is in the land. People are eating, enjoying life. All is well. Look at, look at how verse 4 explains the king. It says he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. Right? In his public life and in his private life. In his family life, And in his work life, it's going good. I mean, could you want anything else than your public life and private life just going well? 
That's the king. It couldn't be going better. But, but like all storytellers, like all stories, we know it's a setup, right? And once again, God interrupts the king by day, by way of the night. The king has a dream, a recurring dream, that turns out to be a nightmare. And so he does what he always does, right? He, he, he needs an interpretation. These dreams, especially in the ancient Near East, were not just dreams. They were, they were conversations that God was trying to have with people. And so he needs to figure out what this vision means. And we've seen this before in chapter 2. So he grabs his, you know, his wise men, his counselors, and he says, make sense of this for me. And, and this time, he, he doesn't do this in chapter 2. This time he actually even tells them the dream but his counselors, the wise men, the Chaldeans, all, all those people who should be able to interpret this dream, can't. Now, I think we should maybe interpret this, not just that they can't, because if you look at this dream, it's really easy to interpret what's going on here. I don't think that it's that they can't. I just think that it's they won't. They're terrified about what the king is going to do if they were to explain the implications of this vision on the king himself. So if it's they won't or they can't, it it doesn't really matter. Verse 8, finally Daniel is called in and the king says, okay, Daniel, you're the most spiritual person in the kingdom. I need you to interpret this king for me. And that's when the king kind of explains the vision. So the vision is this. There, there's, there's the earth, there's the planet, and there's this huge tree coming out of it. Enormous and beautiful and glorious. Huge branches. Lots of trees. Lots of, uh, um, lots of branches. Lots of leaves. And then underneath it, animals are you know, finding shade, finding food. It's amazing. It's glorious. Like, so... so Uh, So far, so good as it relates to the dream, as it relates to the vision. And the only hint that things are about to go wrong is verse 11. Look at it. It says that this tree, its top reached to the heavens. And that phrase comes up again in the Old Testament. That phrase, nearly exactly, it comes in relationship to the Tower of Babel. If you know that story, you know it did not go well. Humpty Dumpty came crumbling down, right? So we see this tree. It's glorious. It's good. It's towering above the earth. And then we see a holy watcher come down. Now, what is this holy watcher? That's a kind of a weird description. Well, it's just another word for an angel. A heavenly messenger that is sent down from heaven. And it is, as all angels are, frightening. Whenever you see a, a human uh, interact with an angel, it's terrifying. But, but notice that the fear and the terror isn't, that the, uh, isn't what uh, the king sees. It's actually what the king hears. Verse 14, this is what the, the watcher, the, the angel says. Cut down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit. I mean, it's alarming at best. The tree is cut down and all that is in its place is a stump. And to hold it, to fasten it, just so that this 
this uh, stump can't go anywhere is a kind of a, 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 a circular iron and bronze uh, kind of band around the stump. Verse 15, it gets even t- more terrifying. Because we, we, we think this is just a tree, an inanimate object, but then in verse 15, the inanimate object, object becomes personified. L- look at it, verse 15. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human, and let the mind of an animal be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. Right there we know that the tree represents a person. And so this king, at this point, has to know that it probably represents him and his vast kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And so really why he wants an interpretation isn't to, to know, oh, is this for sure me, although he does need that confirmation. He, he really needs to know, is there any escape? Is there any hope? Is there any way out of this dream? Well, unfortunately, the holy watchers make this exceedingly unlikely. Look at verse 17. It says, this is the, the, the angel says, the sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers the decision is given by word of the holy ones. And then later on, Daniel is going to say it's by decree of God. This is legal language. The judgment, the gavel has fallen. This punishment is coming on the king. It's not if, it really is when. Now, Daniel hearing this, hearing the king say this, he's, the, the, the language is he's frightened. Now, there's probably two reasons why he's frightened. The first is obvious. He has no idea what the king's going to do when he interprets the dream for him. This, this king, let's just say he is a little bit emotionally unstable. And for all he knows, that he's going to go into a rage and kill Daniel right then. So, I mean, he has good reason to be fearful. But I think there's a different reason, too. And we see the motivation for his fear, fear down in verse 19. He doesn't want this, this madness. He doesn't want this punishment to fall on the king. He wishes that it doesn't. He knows what this is all about. He just doesn't wish that it would come on the king. You see, Daniel, Daniel's not one of those people that delights in seeing other people's misfortune. He... He has a tender heart to the king, even when the king did not have a very tender heart towards him. I think in many ways, Daniel ought to remind us of Jesus. Jesus, if you remember, as he's getting closer and closer to the crucifixion, he is entering into Jerusalem, into Passion Week. And as he's walking into Jerusalem, he surveys Jerusalem. And we find out in Luke that he begins to weep. Now, I think it's clear he's not weeping that he's about to die. He's actually weeping. He's saddened because he knows judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem. Jesus even has compassion on those who are about to crucify him. And that was Daniel as well. 
Daniel is about to uh, kind of proclaim and explain a punishment, a, a sort of message of, of judgment and punishment on the king for his pride. I mean, it's not a positive. This is not like a, a verbal hug. But Daniel does, doesn't take any glee from this. He has sadness in his eye when he looks at the king, knowing what's about to fall him. I think this is a great attitude to have as we bring the message of the king and his kingdom, the message of the good news to our neighbors, our community. It's good news. It's glorious news about God who so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for proud sinners. It is good, exceedingly good and loving news. And our, our emotions should match that. Well, the king really is tired of just waiting. And so, finally, he, the king turns to Daniel and says, just give me the meat and give it to me raw. So Daniel begins to, uh, once again, kind of describe the, the tree, its greatness, and then the raw comes, verse 22. He says, point blank, the tree is you, king. You're that great tree, symbolized by the greatness of your empire, that you provided for so many, you have a vast kingdom. You are the tree. But you're also the tree that's going to get chopped down. And in this place, you're going to have the, the bronze, ire, uh, bronze and iron um, cord wrapped around you, which really is just symbolic of saying, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be no way out. Your humility, it's coming, and there's no escaping it. And the only good news actually is this whole bit of for how long. It says it's going to happen for seven periods of time. That's the only hint of hope in all of this. And the, the hint of hope is that it's not going to be forever. There, there was an allotted period of time that this humiliation is going to befall the king. And it's going to be for seven periods of time. Now, when you read this, you might go, oh, that's seven years. And it might be that. But that language, actually the, the language for seven periods of time, it comes up in Daniel uh, 2 and Daniel chapter 3. And in both times it's not talking about years, it's just talking about seasons. Re- really, the, the important thing is for seven seasons, for, for seven periods of time, or we could just put it this way, for the perfect amount of time, the providential amount of time that God needs in order to awaken this king he is going to be made low. And we know that this, this time of humiliation, where he's going to be mad, where he's going to become insane, where he's going to become like a beast in the field, well, there's going to be purpose in it. That this punishment has a purpose. And we see this laid out three times. Just so we don't miss it, there is a purpose for this. God has a great plan for the king. He is going to make the king a great herald in his kingdom. But in order to do that, he needs him to be made low. So look, look at this sort of uh, musical note that comes up in this chapter three times. And really, this is a musical loop that comes up time and time again in the entire book of Daniel. So verse 17, the holy watcher says these words in the vision to the king. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that's purpose language, isn't it? 
to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and, and sets up it to the lowliest of men. Then go to verse 25. This is Daniel now speaking to the king. Same language. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over till you know purpose that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Then lastly, verse 32. This is when the time finally comes, the fulfillment of this vision lands on the king and the heavenly messenger, maybe the same messenger, announces this to the king, verse 32. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you know purpose that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Yes, this punishment is going to come on the king, but, but it's not a cruel punishment in the sense that there is no end or there is no purpose. There is a big purpose. This king is going to be made low in order and for a season, a perfect season, a complete season, until he can finally understand a reality about who he is in light of who God is that he might then declare God's greatness among the nations. There's purpose in this. He has to understand that though he is king of one of the great kingdoms on earth, there is another king who is far greater than him, king over the entire universe. There is a kingdom over even his big kingdom. And he is going to be humiliated until he figures out that truth. And so in light of this, Daniel... Look at verse 27. Daniel tries to give the king then some advice. But basically, he, he, he turns to the king and says, well, we understand what the purpose is. The purpose is that you would be so humble that you'd see the greatness of God, his sovereign rule, that he is king over every molecule and every atom. But maybe if you practice humility now, maybe if you don't get rich off of the poor, Maybe if you start living faithfully to God, worshiping God and not worshiping yourself and your other gods, maybe, just maybe, God will increase your prosperity and this won't come upon you. Daniel's kind of, kind of throwing out the idea of maybe if you repent now, the punishment won't come later. Well, the human heart's pretty dense, isn't it? And this king wants to do things the hard way. And it makes sense. I mean, this king has everything. He has everything. He has no want. Everything he needs, he's gotten. Every want is at his disposal. Everything is going well. Why would he turn to God? Yes, this is a a great dream, but being humiliated, bowing to another God, he preferred to do things the hard way. Verse 29. A year passes. Now, maybe, maybe the king forgot. Or maybe the king's just really good at compartmentalization, right? Like, in the back of his mind, he's like, I know this day is coming, but I'm just going to kind of milk this, enjoy this, you know, just ride this 
this, uh, this market until finally recession hits? We don't exactly know, but for 12 months, he's just living the good life until one normal day comes. Just a normal day. And the king, verse 29, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace, and he looks out at his vast kingdom. And I just want you to see this. Okay? He's looking out. You know, the breeze is on him. He's, he's standing there with a Mai Tai in his hand, not a care in the world. And he looks out, and he sees all of the roads that he's built, built with limestone. And on each of these roads, a beautiful artwork, lions and sculptures. Just seeing men and women in commerce coming in and out of the city. He, he then turns and sees the hanging gardens. Beautiful, one of the seven wonders of the world. And he sees everyone enjoying it. That he built, he commissioned, he paid for. And he looks over to the other side and he, he sees the, the temple that he built for his god Marduk, which he's named after. And next to it is a huge ziggurat. And it's 288 feet tall. It's 30 stories high. And he did it. He commissioned it. He built it. And then he looks over and he says, 53 other temples that he built to other gods. And he sees men and women and children coming in and out, worshiping, enjoying the worship of all these gods. He did it. He looks around his major city, the capital, where his palace is, and he sees an enormous wall an enormous outer wall. This is like the helm's deep of its day. There is no way anyone's getting in. He did it. I mean, when you think of all the buildings in the wall, I mean, he either gave it steroids or Botox, right? He made it bigger or more beautiful. And he did it. The inner gate had eight huge, massive um, uh, doors. And in it came the nation's. In and out. Trading goods. There, there wasn't the world wide web, but there was worldwide commerce in that part of the world. And he did it. The prosperity, people eating, enjoying the fruit of their labor. He did it all. So if anyone could sit there and boast, if anyone could sit there and go, look what I did. Look what I did for the world. Look what I did for people. I gave them unity. I gave them a part to, be, I gave them a part to play in this great country he did it all. And so in a, just a stroke of a sentence, he's just standing there and he says one sentence that I think any of us would say, or, or maybe not the exact way, but maybe most of us have said. He says this, verse 30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, what, what is the king saying? Look at the pronouns, all right? Here's a, key, here's a key to living in any culture. Always look at the pronouns, okay? Look at the pronouns. I built my mighty power, my majesty. Pride. They're pretty beastly types of words. And at those words, it triggered the vision. Right then, he, the king of Babylon, he goes insane. He, he thinks he is an animal. 
which we, we actually have current and historical evidence that this is a real mental illness, and this falls on the king. And he's, you know, he immediately, verse 33, it says, the, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, a grass like ox, and his body was bathed with dew of heaven until his hair grew long as eagle's feathers. His nails became like bird's claw. He goes mentally insane, and there is no DSM-5 at this point, right? There's no mental hospital. There's no medication. And so he's just pushed onto the margins of society to live out this allotted period of time, which is long enough for him to grow long fingernails and long hair, and he lives out this hellish experience, this beastly reality. God has made this proud king and he has humiliated him. Now, pride is always ugly. And we know this, right? Especially when we see it in others. I mean, we, we hate proud people and we can spot it from a mile away. I mean, we can, we can spot the king's pride right here. You say, look, it's pride. I mean, you get to the end of chapter 4 and it spells out. The king himself says, yes, I was proud. I mean, it's easy to see pride in other people. It's really hard to see it in ourselves, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you're like, in a small group going, it's just my pride. I'm a really proud man or proud woman. Pride is like the oldest sin. We talk about sins of the eye, sins of lust, sins of greed, sins of the tongue. And yet the oldest and most beastly sin there is, is the sin of pride. And it's beastly because it's hard to see. It's, it's subtle. We can always see it in other people. But for us, it's harder to see. It's also difficult because how do you get rid of pride? I got bad news for us all. I really think there's, in one sense, only one way to get rid of pride. We're seeing it here. In order to to be humble, you have to go through the valley of humiliation. And it can be painful. Utterly painful as it was for this king. But it's always a gracious gift of God. As we see in the king. Well, providentially, and by God's sheer grace, this punishment does not come on the king forever. So the end of days come. The allotted time that the angel spoke about. It comes to its end. And finally, the king has learned his lesson. I have no idea how he learned this lesson, but at some point he wakes up and all we know is, verse 34, he lifts his eyes to the heavens. Which in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, is sort of a a phrase for humility, right? It's saying, I'm low and I'm looking up at someone big particularly the God of the universe. And so here, the king finally understands his lowliness 
and the sheer heights and power and might of God. The king starts hanging out at the hill of pride. He then goes into the valley of humiliation. And it's there that he finally sees God for who he is. He gazes up at heaven and instantly, it says, at that moment, his mental illness, his insanity leaves him. And and more than that, he's restored. Like his counselors come back and it says he is restored to the kingdom. And then he writes this confession. He writes this confession. He wants to tell you what he's learned in the Valley of Humiliation. Listen to these words. It says, I I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now this perfectly dovetails to what the king said at the beginning. He, he began saying, I'm going to gather all the nations, all people, all tribes, all language together, and I'm going to write this newsletter, this public broadcast about who God is. And he gives this amazing speech, right? How great are his signs, verse 3. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Right? Same language, beginning and end. That's the theme. He's gathering his entire empire. Every tribe, tongue, and nation are coming together, and he wants you to know, he wants me to know, he wants the entire world to know that there is a king and there is a kingdom that's far greater than him, far greater than his, and he has testified that he has at least experienced a little bit of it. And he wants us to know about it. And then look at, listen to the last words the king of Babylon ever makes in recorded history. He, he might have written other things, but we don't know how. These are the last words of the king. If anyone else said this, my guess is you'd go, I'm seeing this guy in heaven. I, Nebuchadnezzar, here's his public testimony, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That is the last words of the king. Words of, lest I just summarize them, words of repentance. Here's a man who has been touched by an angel. But here's the thing. I think we re- read this story and we think of the, the ghastly experience. I mean, this is the first Beauty and the Beast story, right? Where the inner ugliness of the prince turns out to an outer beastliness. Well, that's what happens here, right? right? The, the 18th century French writer of the, the, the old Beauty and the Beast, he's just stealing one from our story. Here's the first Beauty and the Beast story. But here, the king... As he exits stage left from this story, he doesn't go, ugh, I mean, that was really humiliating. Seven years of being a mental illness. 
I mean, there's no sense of bitterness. There, there's no sense of frustration. There's just gratefulness for a reality that he's experienced and the extent to which God went to get his attention that he might know who God is and ex- display it to the nations. He was humbled, but he was humbled so that he would be turned from an idolater to someone who would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Daniel, God humbles this king. But he humbles this king in order to raise him back so that he can testify to God's goodness. This is what God does in a greater way in the church, does he not? This is how God always works. You see, the message that came to the king in Daniel 4 was about the king and his kingdom. And the message that comes through Jesus Christ, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar got a piece of the puzzle, but he didn't know the whole, the, the whole masterpiece. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, we realize that Jesus came and the message is clear. The kingdom of of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He is the king who ushers his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. And then he ascends and says, I want all of you, I want the whole nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation to know and, and understand this message. And so how am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to redeem a people. I'm going to die for a people. I'm going to take proud men and women and I'm going to redeem them through my son, Jesus Christ. And then I'm not going to just leave them. I'm going to send myself. I'm going to send the spirit to them and empower them so they could testify to the king of the universe and what he's done preeminently through Jesus Christ. Daniel 4 is all about the extent to which God would go in order to make his name great among the nations. He would go to such an extent to humble a pagan king and then use that pagan king to display his glory among the people in the empire. And that's what God's doing now. He's taking the church and he has humbled us by ultimately humiliating Jesus Christ on the cross and then uniting men and women, to Jesus Christ so that collectively we can, just like Nebuchadnezzar, extol, honor, and praise King Jesus and tell the universe, tell every man, woman, and child in every tribe, tongue, and nation that there is a king and there is a kingdom far greater than any king and kingdom. That's the extent to which God goes. It's a great extent. It's a glorious extent. He will take a king from pride to humility and make him into a worshiper of God. So, so let me just ask. I mean, in many ways, we have our works. We have many things that we do as a church. But our words, our words, don't underestimate the power of your words. The king, when he experienced Christ, he was overflowed with words of praise. That really is our calling. We we are messengers in that sense. Redeemed by Christ so that we can praise Christ 
and let everyone know it. So let me just encourage you. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at his words. And let them be a testimony to us all that God can use any of us. Not as we have a perfect life or perfect morality. That The king certainly didn't. I mean, I look pretty good in contrast to the king. I've never sent anyone to a lion's den or a fiery furnace. And yet, that's not the point. The point is that God can use any of us. The point is that we just need a point to who the king is, to how you get into his kingdom through Jesus Christ, and then let's see God work his providential power to bring men and women into his kingdom by his spirit and power. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are so grateful for the immensity of your, your rule and reign. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would bring more and more humility to our personal lives and our corporate lives such that we don't rob you of the glory you deserve. May we testify as the church has always testified to your greatness, to your glory. And may we also testify to your return and the longing for your return. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.